I want to thank all of you for uh, allowing me to come here this morning and preach uh, the word to you. I'm honored and delighted to be here at First Baptist Alcoa and thankful for your pastor for the kind uh, use of uh, allowing me to, to speak in his pulpit and for uh, Cody Barnhart, who's a good friend, for inviting me. Uh, Cody and I have known each other for a while now. Uh, he first interned with me uh, at ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So I, I was a vice president of communications there for about six and a half years, uh, helping to uh, advocate for Southern Baptists on issues of religious liberty and sanctity of life. And uh, now I'm a uh, senior vice president at the National Religious Broadcasters, which is a, um, really an association uh, made up of Christian broadcasters. So if you listen to the radio, as I have my whole life, if folks like David Jeremiah or Chuck Swindoll or Alistair Begg or Nancy Lita Moss or, or, or folks on the family, several, many of those ministries, we uh, represent those ministries and advocate for the airwaves and platforms to be open and also equip Christian communicators. So that's kind of what I do now. But glad to be here this morning and grateful to serve you. If you have your Bibles, I wanted you to turn to Mark chapter 6, and the passage that was just read is going to be our text this morning, a great passage in the Gospel of Mark. And um, the title of my sermon is, Who Says You Can't Go Home? Now, uh, America, we love uh, homecomings, don't we? Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to watch those videos that people post on Facebook, uh, surprise videos of a soldier coming home and surprising their, their kids. Uh, there's a, a family in our church, and uh, he serves in the National Guard, and he was away, and uh, they surprised the family. And uh, they, they actually were all gathered in their home, and they thought they were FaceTiming him, and they were, and then he came down the stairs and said, hey guys, I'm here. And uh, it was such a cool moment, surprised his mother and his wife and everything. We, we love um, homecomings. There's just something about them that makes us kind of teary-eyed. That uh, famous philosopher, John Bon Jovi, wrote this about coming home. He writes this. He says, who says you can't go home? I'm not going to sing this. I'm going to spare you. Who says you can't go home? There's only one place they call me one of their own. Just a hometown boy born a rolling stone. Who says you can't go home? Who says you can't go back? Been all around the world, and as a matter of fact, there's only one place left I want to go. Who says you can't go home? We love homecomings, don't we? Um, I, I think when I think of homecomings, I also think of, you know, we're, we just finished the Olympics, and whenever a gold medalist goes back to their hometown, is kind of greeted as a homecoming hero. Or uh, I think of, you know, every time Peyton Manning comes back to Knoxville, right? He's greeted as a, as a hero. Um, well, today in our study of the book of Mark, we come upon a scene in the life of Jesus that is the, really the opposite of a homecoming, if you will. Uh, after doing ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee, early in his public ministry, Jesus returns about 25 miles southwest to his hometown of Nazareth. And the reception is the opposite of what we just talked about. It's, it's rather chilly. Um, and uh, we just read from Mark chapter 6, 1 through 13, but there's, this is an important moment in the life of Jesus. Uh, Mark is early on here establishing Jesus' divine authority. Uh, in the last few, you know, in the, in the parts leading up to this, uh, in the gospel of Mark, 
the chapters leading up to this. Uh, Mark sort of walks really quickly through Jesus' early ministry, healing the sick, uh, demonstrating power over creation, raising the dead, uh, forgiving sins, establishing the fact that the kingdom of God has dawned and that Jesus is the true Messiah. He's the fulfillment of those kingdom promises. All that the prophets had foretold is coming to pass. He's doing things that only the Son of God could possibly do. The, the types of mighty acts that predicted would happen from the long-awaited promised one. And then he comes home, and he's not welcomed as a hero, but he's rejected. Uh, and so in my view, in, in this passage here in Mark chapter 6, there's really three important pieces to this part of Mark chapter 6. First is Jesus the man, and then Jesus messengers, and then Jesus message. And first, Jesus the man. And I just want to read a little bit from, uh, reread a little bit from Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogues, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are his these miracles performed by his hands. Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief he was going around the villages teaching. The first thing I want you to notice here is this, this passage really highlights both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. And I want you to notice two things. First, we should be reminded here, this reminds us that the audience in the synagogue was amazed by his teaching. Uh, a little background here. Typically, a speaker in the synagogue had to be invited to come speak. Um, so Jesus was invited to come and uh, to read the Old Testament scriptures and then speak. Uh, the synagogue was often the place where the scriptures were read and where they gathered. Uh, after, after Israel's exile, uh, they established synagogues wherever they were located. Uh, and then they only went, uh, made a pilgrimage to the temple for the important feasts. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus wowed people with his teaching. If you remember, when he was only 12 years old, he was with the rabbis in the synagogue, and he amazed them with his teaching. And earlier in the book of Mark, in chapter 1, we see the same dynamic in Capernaum, which is along the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had set up his early ministry. And then Luke chapter 4 records a previous instance here in Nazareth, his hometown, where Jesus opened the book of the scroll of Isaiah and taught them and then declared to them, this day it has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus' teaching came with authority and power. Uh, and, and it was authority and power above that of the rabbis and the educated scholars, above what they were teaching. Uh, in an earlier part of this book, uh, part of Mark, he records people's response, that he, he spoke as one who, quote, had authority. This was all the more remarkable because Jesus, unlike 
the rabbis didn't have any formal training. So the thing you have to understand here in this passage is that they're not just commenting on his oratory or his style or his knowledge of the scriptures even, but they're commenting on and they're amazed and they're marveling at the power with which he spoke. You see, God had promised through the prophets that in the day of the Lord, a Messiah would come who would teach them. Isaiah chapter 54, 13 says this, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Jesus' teaching in the synagogue had authority and power because as God, he is the lawgiver. And he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This day, the prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing, he says. This is God teaching. The word has power. You see, the rabbi's teaching was important and good. In our preaching, what we do here, what your pastor does here, what pastors do around the world in pulpits are doing today is important. It's vital. But the word of the Lord has ultimate power and authority. And this is what amazed them. They were amazed by by this. They were witnessing and hearing God himself teaching. God, the supreme lawgiver, teaching with power. They were also amazed by his miracles. Uh, He didn't do many miracles here in Nazareth, as we'll see, but he did some. And undoubtedly, word had spread around the Galilee and beyond the Galilee of his mighty acts where he demonstrated his divine powers as king. He was doing things only, only a Messiah could do, only the Son of God could do. But then we also see his humanity here. Notice how he's described here in Mark 6, what the people say. Aren't you, aren't you Mary's son? Aren't you the carpenter? Aren't you the brother of James and Judas and Joseph and Simon? Don't you have sisters? <laughs> this is what's hard for us to comprehend even today about Jesus, that Jesus had a relatively normal childhood. We, we don't know much of his childhood because much of it's not recorded. But to these people of Nazareth, his neighbors and his family people he grew up with, he was just an ordinary boy. You could just hear them speaking, right? Aren't you the guy that, like, made furniture for us? You built our cabinets? You put in our ceiling fans? You fixed our air conditioner? This guy, really? You can hear them saying that. We we tend to think Jesus, you know, as 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 a human being... As a, as a young man, just kind of came out of the womb, you know, spouting powerful phrases and walking on water as soon as he was born. But according to Luke 2.52, Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Jesus was fully human. He had a fully human experience. He had to grow up as a boy into a man. He was a carpenter by his father's side. He Undoubtedly, many of those people in the synagogue who are hearing him preach had known him as a little boy, had had furniture built by him and his father. Jesus' full humanity is important to us because it means as a human, he could fully bear our sin. It means that this is Jesus declaring 
that human bodies are good and valuable. It means that because he rose again, we too will rise again, body and soul. You see, the gospel is not just, phys- not just spiritual, it is, but it's physical, it's cosmic. This is the promise of the resurrection, that we will rise one day, body and soul. Our bodies will rise again because Jesus rose again bodily. Paul makes this case in 1 Corinthians 15 that God will reconstruct, will resurrect our bodies. This is good news for us, good news for the world. Man, we live in such a broken world where uh, we're surrounded by sickness and death and disease and viruses that continue to linger. Um, Your pastor prayed for Afghanistan, and we think of the horrific, awful slaughter that's happening there of good and innocent people. And my friends, the only hope that we have is that Jesus Christ has risen again, and he's coming back, and we too will rise again. But the hardest thing of all for Jesus is that in his hometown, where he was born, where he, or I mean, where he grew up, among the people who knew him, he was rejected. And, and don't discount what a crushing blow this was. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he's approved by the Father. But to be performing all these miracles and to come to the one place that should be the first in line to honor him and be proud of him, they reject him. They reject him. Think about that. A couple years ago, I finished a a great biography of Winston Churchill, the great one-volume biography by Andrew Roberts, which I highly recommend. And Churchill's one of my favorite historical figures. And one of the remarkable things I learned in this biography was just how cruel his father was. I mean, here's Churchill's doing exceptionally well in this boarding school. He's getting good grades. He's excelling. And he'd write and tell his dad about all the good things he was doing. And his dad would just write back repeatedly, you are a disappointment to me. And even in his early political success, his dad could never acknowledge it. You know, a thousand ticker tape parades and stadiums full of people cannot replace the acceptance by your own family. And Jesus' own hometown rejected him. And here in Nazareth, he was just, he's just a carpenter's son, Joseph and Mary's kid. He could almost hear the mockery. Hey man, you're nothing special. You think you're you think you're all that? You're nothing special. His own family rejected him. In other places we learn that his own brothers, his own brothers didn't believe. Of course, we know that James believed after the resurrection. But before that, they thought he was crazy. Our brothers crazy. It's hard for us to read this and imagine how Jesus' hometown, how his family can reject him. Why did they reject him? Well, it's pretty simple, really. If you read this along with the passage from Luke, where Jesus first preached in the synagogue in Nazareth, you'll find that they actually liked most of his message. When he declared, for instance, that he was 
the one the prophets spoke of. They, they love that part. He even says in Luke 4 that they spoke well of him. But then when he began to point out their unbelief and their rejection of other prophets God had sent and of God's willingness to save Gentiles who had more faith than Israel, okay, now these people are upset. Those people in his hometown tried to kill him. Listen to Luke 4, 29. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he, he went away. Think about this. Oh, we like the whole Messiah part. That's cool. We like the fact uh, that you're doing all these wonderful miracles. Oh, wait, you're, you're, you're getting into our business here a little bit. You're pointing out our sin and our unbelief. Okay, now we have a problem. Hey, now we're going to throw you off a cliff. <laughs> right? Be honest with yourself. Are, are you like that? Am I like that? We love that preacher. Man, he's great. We love him. Oh, wait a minute. He's stepping on my toes here. He's pointing out some of, some of my idols. He's getting into my business with his preaching. I didn't ask him to do that. Then we want to throw him off a cliff. Right? You can imagine the feelings are raw here as Jesus comes back to Nazareth. And imagine the disappointment that, again, his hometown rejected his teaching. But Jesus says a prophet is without honor in his hometown. In other words, like the other prophets God had sent to Israel, those closest to him refused to hear his message. To quote John later, he came into his own and his own received him not. There's a lot for us to digest here in this passage, and I think we really need to see this. You see, they love their hometown boy when he was performing miracles, when he's wowing him with his preaching of scripture. But they got angry when he, when he turned the word of God in on them and said that they needed to repent. This was not the Jesus they wanted. They didn't like this Jesus. Mark said they were offended. It's this word scandalon. They were scandalized. You see, you can be close to Jesus and not truly be known by Jesus. You see, in America, we like our domesticated Jesus, don't we? Jesus is still pretty popular here in the 21st century. He really is, right? Jesus kind of sprinkled on top of our dreams and our desires. Jesus who ratifies our political opinions. Jesus who doesn't get in the way of our plans or our plans for our children. Jesus is totally, Jesus who's totally cool with our lifestyle, right? The Jesus I know wouldn't condemn me for this or for that. We like Jesus who might give us our best life now. But we, we don't want him to get up all in our business, do we? We don't want him to ask us to repent. Like, ask me to repent. Like, we know Jesus wants those other people to repent. <laughs> but what about me? We don't want to have to take up a cross and follow him. And so we get mad and we're scandalized. But if Jesus is truly the promised one, if he's the son of God, the Lord of creation, the king of kings, if Jesus is the one who bore our sin and our shame and is the one who rose again victorious, then he rightly demands our repentance and our allegiance. This is the only rightful response, right? 
And that's the case Mark is making here about Jesus. He's saying that the one who raises, the one who raises from the dead and calms the seas, well, he gets to dictate the terms. You see, being close to Jesus isn't enough. I'm afraid that's the state of many religious people in our world today. Maybe even you. <laughs> you can affirm his teachings. You can know the Bible. You, you might even have been raised in church. And yet you might not be a Christian if you've not truly repented of your sins and turned to Jesus in faith. Jesus warned about this in Matthew 7 when he says that on judgment day, many who did a lot of wonderful things in my name were not true disciples. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or you workers of iniquity. I never knew you, he says. But Lord, we were in Nazareth. I never knew you. But Lord, I could recite nine out of the 10 commandments and I voted the right way. I even ate at Chick-fil-A every other day and listened to K-Love. I never knew you. Well, I did all these social justice works in your name. I never knew you. Lord, I even defended the Bible and stood up for Christian values. I never knew you. Lord, I gave all my money to help the poor. I never knew you. And I hope that's not you today. The people of Nazareth looked around and said, sure, we like a rabbi who does miracles. We like that. We love that. But we don't need a savior. <laughs> let's, let's not confuse things. We don't need a savior. They believed in their own goodness and self-righteousness, and so can we. Man, today we live in an era of just projected self-righteousness. Man, go on social media. Everyone is quick to tell you how virtuous they are and how bad everybody else is. What's haunting about this passage in Mark is Jesus' amazement at their unbelief. Mark says he could do no work among them, no mighty work among them. This doesn't mean they were beyond saving, but that their hearts were so hard he chose not to do any work there. I'm struck by the fact that those closest to Jesus, those who knew him the most, were the farthest from him. My friend uh, Dean and Sarah has a great book called The Unsaved Christian, and he says, he tells a story about his own life growing up in a religious but not a gospel culture. He calls this cultural Christianity, and he says this was a Christianity that was without Christ. The cross and resurrection could, not have, could have not existed, and it wouldn't have changed my Christianity. Growing up, I never had anyone tell me I was a sinner in need of a savior. I was told to have hope and faith, to love others, and ultimately the greatest doctrine of cultural Christianity, to be a good person. See, unbelief says, man, I don't need that. I'm good enough. I got this. I'm good. And faith says, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Jesus says that unbelief locks the heart from spiritual power. Unbelief shuts off the heart from spiritual power. In, 1 John, in John 3, 18, 
Jesus says, he that believes not is condemned already. Ken Hughes says, unbelief freezes the exercise of God's power. You see, repentance brings you to Jesus. It's God's kindness, we are told, that leads to repentance. Repentance opens you up to grace. And down deep, we know this. We know this. You know this. You, you, you're trying to save yourself. You're trying to justify yourself. But when Jesus comes, when we encounter the real Jesus, he exposes our sin. And the Bible's assessment, God's assessment of us is, is that everyone, even the good people, even the ones who know all the Bible verses and the cliches, even the people who look Christian, even Nicodemus, who was the most devout man in all of Israel, all of us, even, even those people, even us, are sinners. Romans says that no one is righteous. No, not one. And again, deep down, we know this. We know we have dark and hidden parts of us that we hope nobody sees. Jesus knows all of that, and he calls us to repentance. Why? Because he came to save us. You see, repentance is just us agreeing with God's assessment of ourselves. And I want to plead with you today. Do not resist Jesus in unbelief. Don't let pride block you from God's mercy. Jesus came to save you. Stop trying to think you can fix and save yourself. Jesus can only save one type of people. He can only save sinners. Only sinners can find his sweet grace. Man, if this is you today, if you are, if you are someone who is around Jesus... You're around Jesus. You're in the neighborhood of Jesus. But you've not put your faith in him for personal salvation. Please don't wait. Please repent. Find the sweet mercy and fellowship and joy of knowing Jesus and being known by him. The second point that we see in here are the messengers. And I won't read this from Mark 6 again, but this is where Jesus sends out the 12 disciples on a mission. You remember Jesus had promised his disciples that if they follow him, he would make them fishers of men. And now he is. And you see, they were going to the Jewish people to tell them to announce the good news that their long-awaited king, the one who was to sit on David's throne forever, the son of Abraham, who would finally fulfill the promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed that he's here. And Jesus essentially gives them three instructions. He, first, he tells them to go two by two. Now, this is not necessarily prescriptive or a mandate for all future missions, but specifically for, for these disciples in this time, uh, the presence of two people was what was required, for instance, to believe evidence in court. So there was a, there was a method and a reason for two by two. Um, he also tells them to travel lightly, not take extra coats or sandals or accept accommodations in the homes of the people to whom they're going. Again, this is not a prescriptive. It's not a mandate for pastors and missionaries to, to be poor. We see 1 Corinthians 9, which talks about that. It's not a lifestyle of extreme asceticism, but it would be a signal to the people to whom they were going that they were there to share the good news. Uh, it, this would be a sign of hospitality to those people in those days. They, they were, there would not be cultural barriers. 
to the delivery of the message. And then he tells them that if, there's a me- that if their message is not received, well, to leave where they were and go where it would be. This custom of dusting off your shoes was a sign of leaving them to the judgment of God, leaving the hearers to the judgment of God. It was a bold statement, actually, saying that those who rejected the message would be considered to be lost and not the people of God. This would be a controversial message. So I think we can learn a lot from what Jesus told his disciples. First, we learn that we go sent by Jesus. See, there's no category in the New Testament for a Christian who's not sent. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is indeed the Son of God, the express image of God, to quote Hebrews, then how can we not go? If God in Christ has reconciled us and is renewing and restoring the world, how can we not go? If Jesus has died and rose again for sinners, how can we not go? Romans says that it's beautiful are the feet of those who spread good news. And he asked, he, he asked the haunting question, how will they hear without a preacher? Well, you and me are, are, are that preacher. That the people in our community, the people in our world, the people in our sphere of influence, we are the means by which God is delivering to them the good news of the gospel. Second, we go in community. You know, evangelism is not a solo project. It's a community project. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to adopt what I, what I sort of call an Elijah syndrome, where we feel like we're the only ones, right? I'm the only one standing for truth and righteousness. I'm the only one sharing the good news of the gospel. This is how Elijah felt, right? And God was like, uh, no, there's like, yeah, 7,000 others that are, that are with you. We're a body. We're surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses in heaven. So we go, sent, on the mission of God together. We strengthen each other. We need each other. We need the local church. We need each other as a body of Christ. We need the diversity of gifts in order to fulfill the mission of God. We can't serve the Lord by ourselves. Uh, We need each other. We need gospel-preaching churches to cooperate together for the sake of missions. This is one of the main reasons we're Southern Baptists so that we can partner together with other churches for the sake of missions. This church alone, and my church alone, can't send 5,000 missionaries to the field, but together we can, right? This church alone, and my church alone, can't educate the next generation of pastors, but together we can. This church alone, and my church alone, can't do all the possible church planning that we need to do around this country, but together we can Third, we go unencumbered. Jesus didn't want his disciples bogged down by the cares of this world. This doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't have things, houses, clothes, cars, all those things, right? Paul would tell Timothy uh, to uh, enjoy all things in moderation, essentially. But we should ask ourselves, periodically, do these things have us? Do the things of this world weigh us down so much that we can't be on mission for God? Are we living a a lifestyle that is unencumbered so that we can be available for the mission of God? Do our kids' sports schedules dictate our our mission? Do our high lifestyles dictate our mission? Do our every other weekend vacations dictate our mission? Does our entertainment desires dictate our mission? What is keeping you down? Is it time to do as the writer of Hebrews says, lay aside the weights and run the race set before you? 
What's keeping you? And then fourth, we go knowing that we will often be rejected. Think about the way this sending passage in Mark is sandwiched in between Jesus' own rejection by his hometown and John the Baptist martyrdom for speaking the truth. And I, Mark did this on purpose as if to highlight the danger of the mission of God. There's no illusions here. Listen, the gospel will not always be popular. Jesus promised that to live faithfully for him would invite persecution and rejection. Listen to his words in Matthew 10. He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is something for us American Christians to hear. We're not fully prepared, I don't think, for people to not like us for being a Christian. It's, it's still relatively cool to be with Jesus. But to really follow him to where he's leading us will at some point invite scorn. At some point, your Christianity, if you're truly following Jesus, will be out of step with the culture. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 16 in the upper room. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We should not be surprised by persecution. We should not be surprised by scorn. We should not be surprised that the world rejects Christianity or doesn't like the implications of Christianity. But we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Listen, college student, if you follow Christ faithfully, you will face some opposition from your peers. Your faithfulness to Christ will increasingly look weird. It will look out of step. It will look dangerous to many people. And you have to reconcile yourself to that. Parents, as you parent your children, you'll face opposition. People will wonder why you're raising your kids the way you are. Pastors, ministry leaders, as you live on mission, you will face opposition. Now, this doesn't mean we should go out of our way to invite hatred. Uh, sometimes the opposition we face isn't opposition to Christianity, but it's opposition to the way we conduct ourselves. <laughs> so people not appreciating your hot, your hot takes on Facebook, that's probably not Christian persecution. That's probably just you being provocative. Your coworkers knowing that you're kind of hard to work with may not be Christian persecution. It may just mean that you're kind of hard to work with. You snapping at your children it may not be persecution. It may just be you snapping at your children. Uh, we should be people who are both civil and courageous. People who respect the dignity of the people with whom we disagree and yet are willing to stand boldly for the truth. But even if and when, if we do everything right, we can know that it still will not be received by those who hear. Right? But we can take heart because Jesus himself was rejected by his hometown, by the people he loved most. And as the disciples were instructed, we should move on from those who are uninterested to those who are willing to receive the message of the gospel. We do know this promise, that if we do preach the gospel, God will use it to bring people to himself. There are fields ready to harvest. So we shake the dust off our feet and we move toward those who are hungry to hear. And then fifth, we go even if, even if we're imperfect. Think about these men that Jesus just sent on mission. 
They didn't even understand half of what Jesus was saying. They were not trained in the rabbinical schools. They would later run when he was arrested. Some would deny him. They were rough. They were uncouth. They were not professionals. But he sent them anyway. This gives me hope. Jesus isn't looking for perfect people for his mission. He isn't looking for the most eloquent evangelists. Though we we should try as hard as we can to be winsome, to speak well. We should study and grow. Right? This is not a case to be ignorant and to avoid learning and knowing the scriptures. But Christ is in the business of calling and sending imperfect people people for his perfect mission. Do you know the, the work of God around the world, the kingdom of God around the world is built mainly of ordinary Christians. Really. People who don't have book contracts or headline conferences or are famous in any way. Just ordinary people putting their yes on the table and living out the mission of God. It's people like you and me It's ordinary, flawed, uh, scarred, imperfect people. This is how the world today hears about Jesus. And we go, not in our own power, not in our own strength, not in our own giftedness, but in the power and authority of the Spirit of God. Finally, the the last point is the message. Let's look at the message Jesus sent them with. It's twofold. They preach repentance And then he had given them power and authority to cast out demons and to heal. I want to tackle that last one first. The sign gifts that Jesus empowered for his disciples were a demonstration of the signs of the kingdom of God. Jesus' miracles, calming the sea, making the lame walk, exercising demons, raising the dead, were signs of his kingdom. This is the kingdom the prophets predicted. He was extending some of these gifts to the apostles to validate their message of repentance, that the kingdom of God is at hand. We are built today on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is the demonstration of kingdom power accompanied by the message of repentance. And again, if God's kingdom is at hand, repentance is the only logical response. Today, the message is very much the same. And Jesus' instructions to his disciples here tell us of the holistic nature of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel is both individual personal repentance by faith in Christ. And it's social. It's personal and it's cosmic. It's renewing hearts and it's renewing the world. And and today, too many Christians want to sort of debate whether our duty as Christians is proclamation of the gospel only or if it's social action, the outworking of of the gospel. But the, the gospel of the kingdom as preached by Jesus doesn't let us choose between those two. There's, there's some who care about social action, helping the poor, stopping the abortion industry, fighting injustice, etc. Some who are engaged in that work are embarrassed by a gospel that calls people to personally repent and turn to Christ for salvation. They're embarrassed by it. They're embarrassed by a bloody cross. They're embarrassed by God's judgment and wrath. And there's some who care about personal salvation who are fearful of the implications of the gospel toward mercy and justice. 
And Jesus doesn't let us choose between these two. The kingdom of God is both. Repentance and social action always go together in God's kingdom. If the church is only about proclamation and ignores injustice outside its walls, we only have half the gospel. We're like the German church in the 1930s and 40s that could preach an individual gospel and ignore what was going on around itself. Or like parts of the American church during slavery, we could preach a good gospel and ignore what's going on around us. To ignore things in the culture is to baptize the status quo. It's to give affirmation to to injustice. Jesus says that his kingdom is good news for the poor. And so when we do works of mercy, we show that the curse, we show a sign of the kingdom of God, that the curse has been reversed. We're ambassadors of of his kingdom. As much as we come alongside the vulnerable, we show a visible sign of God's coming kingdom. And at the same time, there's a way to try to do justice and change the world without really telling people about their ultimate need, which is reconciliation with Christ, To heal their bodies without telling them about the way their souls can be healed is cruelty. And this is why Jesus is always putting these two things together. When you preach repentance and justice together, you get genuine brokenness and you get a genuine heart of mercy toward those in need. If you believe Jesus died and rose again and defeated sin, death, and the grave, we are free to heal and help without the burden of having to bring heaven to earth ourselves. And we can do this knowing that one day justice and righteousness will prevail when Jesus fully comes back to consummate his kingdom. Jesus says to do both, preach repentance and do physical acts of mercy. And here's the thing, true repentance produces a kind of open-handedness and generosity. It takes our eyes off of ourselves. It frees us of self-worship and then enables us to turn outward toward our neighbors who are broken. Genuine repentance also frees us from a kind of messianic uh, change the world mentality that really is often more about projecting that we're right than being sent. You see, we don't go into our communities and help those who are vulnerable because it feels good or because it looks good on social media or because it's popular. We do it because we're sent as ambassadors of the king. I want to circle back to the beginning again. Remember, if you live sent, you will, like Jesus, be misunderstood. And some of you, when you became a Christian, you know what this is like. It invited scorn from your family and friends. They thought you were going off the deep end, thought you were crazy. And it's hard and it's difficult. But know that the one who sends you also understands what it's like to be rejected. Jesus knows the feeling of being scorned by his family. And ultimately, Jesus knows the feeling of being alone. When he was on the cross, he was alone as he bore the stain of sin. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you see, We can be rejected by our hometowns and we can face rejection from family and friends 
because God ultimately is leading us toward a new home, the new Jerusalem, and has baptized us into a new family. You see, if you live like Jesus calls you to live truly, at times people will think you're a little bit crazy. They just will. Why are you going overseas to share the gospel with people who who haven't heard? Why would you do that? Why are you training your children as you are? Why are you so invested in helping the community? Why are you sponsoring a child in another country? Why do you love the poor? Why do you love the unborn so much? Why? Why are you so radical about Jesus? (laughs) But take heart, the one who sends you has also endured the same rejection. As we close, I just want to ask two questions, two ultimate questions. Is Jesus the one who reversed the curse of sin, who conquers sin and the grave, and who has the power to forgive sins? If that's really true, then the only response is to repent and believe. It's the only response. Is Jesus the one who reverses the curse of sin, who conquers sin and the grave and has the power to forgive sins? If so, if this is really true, tell this good news to others and seek to embody the kingdom of God by coming along the side the most vulnerable. This is what gospel people do. Let's pray, shall we?